Hello and welcome to another episode of Thought Architecture. And in this episode, I wanted to go through a nice idea that uh, that hit me hard last night. And I think it exemplifies a lot of what I talk about as well, which is the idea of viewing the mind much like a diamond and the process of uh, finding a diamond and going through the process of refinement is very similar to the process of refining the mind. So let's say that First of all, we established that refining the mind is never a finished product. That, uh, let's say, if we don't continually polish and uh, check the diamond, that it will revert back to its state. Let's, let's just say that. So we have to continuously make sure that the diamond is shining, you know, that its uh, flaws are, are um, cut out or whatever the case may be, or, you know... Um, worked around so in this case if we imagine the mind like a diamond we have three steps step number one is that the diamond is going to be obviously in the rough it's going to be an uncut diamond it's going to look like a regular stone and number two is this process of cutting the diamond choosing what kind of a cut that you want choosing um, you know if you want to take the flaws of the diamond, let's say, and actually show the flaws as part of it. You know, one of those ideas of like, instead of uh, a bug in the system, you decide to make that bug a feature and roll with that versus working on the flaws and developing out the flaws. And then uh, the third point is then going to be the, the polish of the diamond and the setting of the diamond, so to speak. So let's just say that the mind, like diamond processing, has three parts. And so what's quite interesting is that when we talk about this, this idea came up because I was watching a documentary on um, there are some Buddhists, uh, Buddhist monks in Myanmar who actually will go out and attack uh, Muslims. Okay, so I'm not going to comment on the politics there, but what I am going to comment on is in this documentary, which you can find it down below. It's just a quick vice news thing. Uh, I found it very interesting, you know, regardless of what my feelings are about the reporter, the media, all that kind of stuff, the the narrative in it, um, the message that I understood was this this idea that obviously you've got two sides to the coin with just from the Buddhist perspective where there was one sect of Buddhists who are trying to protect their land and they believe it to be a threat and therefore they're acting out. But there was another guy, another abbot in, in his temple where... Um, he considered this one Buddhist leader who was stoking the fire, so to speak, um, to be irresponsible. That putting such kind of things out to people of, an, he said, an unsound mind um, was, of course, going to start conflict. And we get to this this responsibility of truth concept, the idea that um, handling the truth can only come with, well, how do you behave once you've got the truth? Which usually comes with this idea of a refinement of the mind. For example, are you able to question what you just heard? Or do you go through the emotional trappings first? Do you know yourself enough? And so we bring up this idea of the refinement of the mind being linked to the metas. Meta-emotional, for example, like, oh, I can see how I'm feeling about excuse me, how I'm reacting to this, how I'm feeling about this, and how it's influencing my decisions. And so then we've got a metacognitive perspective as well. And that metacognitive perspective is like, oh, I can see that my thoughts on this are influenced 
incredibly strongly by my own experiences or whatever the case may be. And so it's being able to create a distance around yourself is my perspective of a refinement of the mind. Can we pull out the mind for cognitive biases? Can we pull out the mind for emotional biases? Um, and looking at the natural state of the human operating system first. Well, the natural state is if there's no refinement taking place, a human will respond emotionally. They will be triggered and they will ignore everything else to suit a particular narrative, whatever that narrative is. And so the divisive narrative is probably one of the, the strongest in uh, the human mind, in the human operating system. They are not us. They are responsible for all of our problems and not us. Then it's this idea of, okay, great. Well, let's examine the information that first comes in. Let's examine our responses and our reactions and examine why we are responding and reacting in those ways. Are they valid or invalid? And then the final point is then, well, let's examine what are we going to do about that? So, for example, a lot of people believing um, that they are not going to be persecuted because, um, you know, they're wearing a mask, let's say, and so they can go out and vandalize. Um, but maybe 10 years after that, they'll feel terrible, you know, once their uh, moral compass kicks in or something like that. So you can't escape actions that you take. And the older you get, you get the more you, you understand this kind of uh, perspective that, you know, the past does haunt the ghosts of the past, so to speak. But being able to deal with them and deal, being able to make peace with them is very important as well. And that's another step of the refinement of the mind. And so all of these steps can happen simultaneously. They can happen sequentially. They can happen on a small scale and a large scale. And again, it's adding this idea of progression, regression, sequencing things, as well as having them in series or in parallel, just like an electrical circuit that you learn about in high school. You can run them all at the same time or one at a time. Usually when you're learning, you run them in sequence because it's an easier way for you to pull each snake out of the bag and lay it down on the ground, you know, so that bag of snakes isn't just one big knot. So in saying all of this, the, the point of bringing this up would be to also discuss culture. That is, the unrefined mind is usually a result of the, the ground that it was conceived in, right? And in this case, what we're talking about is culture. Now, it would be very interesting to hear what you guys think of culture. Like, what's your definition of culture? How would you bring culture into this? What would you say um, is a good definition of culture? Now, in the last 15 years, I haven't heard a better explanation than the one I'm about to give you. But I challenge you and I invite you to please bring your explanations of culture in. I would love to hear them. So the understanding of culture that I've got is anything that is shared. So this is usually... Um, thought of to be like overt sharing like oh let me teach you this let me teach you that but they are also the the subtext in a lot of things like the way a person behaves i can see that they have certain beliefs about something and even though they might not say that they believe that this is right or this is wrong they believe that this is what a man does and this is what a man doesn't do you know men behave like this they don't behave like this that type of belief is then passed on a little bit more, you know, subversively. But then culture can also be things we share, for example, like we share a history, we share a language, we share weather. All of these things can influence culture without a doubt, you know. And 
speaking speaking to that, we also have um, culturally appropriate ways of behaving. For example, um, if we talk about um, most cultures will teach people how to interact with each other. What is correct interaction? What is incorrect interaction? You're not allowed to blow your nose in a in a room. You or you have to face the corner if you blow your nose. You know, as in Japan, um, versus let's say, you know, in America you can blow your nose anywhere. For example, what is appropriate behavior? And then when interacting with someone, what is appropriate as well? For example, like gift giving in most of the uh, respect based cultures. You have to offer a gift three times before it can be received. Because if you offer the gift and it's taken, it's considered to be like almost um, expected. Oh, the person's not grateful. But if it's denied more than three times, the pe- the person is being stubborn. And so there is this idea of I need to be able to offer something or like offer my help, let's say, for th- three times. Oh, can I help you? No, 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 it's okay. No, it's okay. Are you sure? Please let me help you. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Please, you know, let me help you. Well, I mean, if it's not too much trouble, great. So the more direct cultures, the more emotive cultures or um, uh, logic-based cultures won't see uh, a purpose in this. But there is a purpose in this. And the idea is that seeing the purpose is important. But to look forward to global cultures as well means let's cherry-pick the most appropriate responses and let's create a global culture where for example um, in situations where we're called to be polite we can be polite in situations where we're called to be much more emotive and connected to our emotions let's do that you know for example the british have this stiff upper lip type of thing where well having a breakdown and actually melting down when you receive bad news about a family member's diagnosis or something like that is somehow frowned upon Um, not necessarily directly but just in the beliefs of, well, any type of melting down is not is not considered good, you know, and, and it's almost perceived as a weakness. So there are lots of interesting ideas about contextual culture. And we can also bring in this idea that high context culture says a lot of things subtly by reading subtle gestures in the hands, the head, the eyes, etc. Subtle cues in language. For example, one of my favorites is where British people say, oh, we must do this again sometime. It's not an invitation to let's plan our next time. It's just a way to say, that was nice. It's not saying, let's do this again sometime. It might even be the opposite, depending on how they said it, depending on you know the rest of the contextual cues that are given. So a person raised in a low-context culture will not be sensitive to these cues. A person raised in high-context culture will be sensitive to these cues even when they don't exist, like, for example, in low-context cultures. So a person like me raised in what I would consider to be more a British fashion, um, I'm very sensitive to subtle cues. And then, of course, coming to America where subtlety isn't a strong suit, let's say, they're more obvious, and even though they're obvious, I would pick up on subtleties like, why would you say that versus this? Why would you say it in that way versus this way? Like, um, <laughs> I think one of my favorites is where um, <laughs> people in, in uh, at least in my experience on uh, the West Coast will say correct when they agree with you. But correct almost implies a power dynamic saying I'm more powerful than you. I'm the teacher and I'm checking your information, even though I might be sharing something that, 
you know, I am professional and then they are not. They would still say correct to agree with me on points that they know about. And in the beginning, this drove me nuts because, you know, how dare you? How dare you say that you know more than me? How dare you assume this power dynamic between us? How dare you? And then I realized I was getting offended. And for them, they didn't mean it like that. And so a lot of contextual cues come up with what is intended meaning of, you know, other people. What is going to be, um, you know, the negotiated meaning. And myself, as someone who's more sensitive to that, I need to take responsibility for that. Otherwise, I will create problems that don't exist. This awareness of my own skills, let's say my own flaws, my own contextual upbringing, allowed me to see something and add it to the refinement of, okay, well, let me inhibit my emotional responses, examine my emotional responses, examine their responses, and then maybe, even if I didn't trust it, throw out a little test to see if this person was being manipulative or was just being uh, not sensitive to cultural topics. Sorry, cultural, uh, contextual cues. So in saying that, there is definitely a point of not being subtle, without a doubt. You know, um, people in these types of cultures where there's a lot of contextual cues also don't directly connect. And it's very difficult for them to feel their emotions and connect emotionally to a person. So the passionate relationship isn't there. The safety and the trust of things isn't there in the same way. And uh, yeah, they tend to... They tend to get really drunk, and as they say in Latin, in vino veritas, in the wine there is truth, there comes the truth, or uh, my favorite one is also in Spanish, they say, um, los niños y los borrachos siempre dicen la, la verdad, the uh, <laughs> children and the drunks always tell the truth, and so the concept is, of course, that uh, you'll notice a lot of the refinements of the mind drop down when a person is drunk. They lose inhibitions. You know, you'll go on their basic uh, operating system, their, the basic protocols, where they will actually unleash all of their emotions, positive or negative or whatever. They'll forget their social niceties and it will be expressed. And I've had this conversation before with other people as well. Like, how can we get there? How can we get to these points of emotional introspection without doing psychedelics, without doing quote-unquote plant medicine, without doing, you know, other forms of traditional medicines? <clears throat> and I use medicine quote-unquote um, because, as uh, a good friend of mine said, medicines are something that you should take when you're sick to almost heal an ailment. You shouldn't be taking them on a regular basis. And if you are, there's more serious issues there. So, you know, I'm a huge proponent of people, fine, okay, you want to do a mushroom trip? Great, good for you, well done. But if you're doing a mushroom trip every five days or something like that, or six days, or, you know, if you're doing mushroom trips every month, may I invite you to consider the option that it's not medicine, but rather uh, an addiction, a dependency psychologically that you have to flight away on these you know dreamy notions that you're some some type of like spiritual connection warrior and i don't say that to wound or to hurt but rather i say this because the present the here the now reality is where we can actually have greater impact on people who need help on people who suffer on people who really want education who want assistance in their lives and value 
And as humans, the human operating system shows, you know, through multiple studies and research, you can see that when we give to others, when we feel valued by a group, by a community, by an individual, we feel valued because we're giving value and we, we create stronger connections. We will be accepted and not in any risk or any, any danger of banishment, which is one of the primary drivers of the human operating system to keep you alive. So just to refresh, going through this idea of the mind is like a diamond and all these stages of refinement working through this idea. And one of my uh, double clicks on this would be that, number one, inhibition, which is a part of the executive function network. Um, inhibition, stopping yourself from saying something, stopping yourself from acting, holding yourself back is one of these muscles that comes with refinement. So watching how people, even when they're triggered, how they hold their tongue. And then also expression, you know, true expression. So a person who always holds their tongue, being able to draw a boundary or express emotion in a positive or a negative light, it doesn't matter. And this is something I've gotten better with. I've, I've felt I can't speak up. And you know what? There was some jackass in the park yesterday who started criticizing me for how I was walking my dog telling me, don't I know about training my dog? Meanwhile, we are, of course, in contact with a, a very, very, very good dog trainer is a friend of, of my wife's, and he's assisting us in training our dog. And the dog is responding so positively. It's a very happy dog. And we're not, you know, using protocols that we disagree with as well. And, um, you know, everything's going smoothly. But this jackass took one look, started commenting, telling us what to do. And straight away... Um, I recognized, of course, this person doesn't feel valued in their life. Of course, this person wants to wants to come in and show, look at me, I'm so knowledgeable, listen to me, you know, and that's a very typical trick of people who are missing value. It's not that they're dumb or anything like that. You know, this guy is probably a smart person, but emotionally just doesn't feel valued. And so we'll step in and try and show value straight off the bat. And as soon as I said, thank you, but we're, we're doing fine with our training. Thank you. Appreciate it. But no, thanks said it very politely, and he walked off in a storm. He was super upset. Now, me, I was also expecting a fight as a result of that because anything that goes above saying, oh, thanks, is kind of fight talk for me where I'm hypersensitive to any kind of conflict like that. And so, you know, that was that was a hell of a thing. So um, he walked off and he couldn't take that kind of no. But drawing that line, in reality is important and being able to step out of yourself and seeing you know this person is coming from a place of wanting value and wanting connection um but was doing so in a way that was not okay with me and i needed to draw a boundary and i did it in a respectful way and if he felt disrespected that's fine but he he chose to then stop communication and walk off rather than continue communication and be like oh really what are you doing and maybe lengthening it you know going into an assessment or apologizing or anything like that so that's just one snippet and inhibition where it's needed. Great. And expression, boundary, boundary drawing lines, you know, giving and receiving. These, these are very important parts of it as well. So choosing to draw a line, that's fine. Giving, you know, but then also giving appreciation, giving compliments, etc. That's another thing. Saying how much you love someone, reinforcing those kind of uh, emotional connections is important. And being able to receive that love as well, hearing how people appreciate you, very important, super, super, super important too. And being able to 
do nothing, say nothing in those moments as well, holding yourself back rather than, you know, being modest because you're told that you should be modest. So these are just a few of the muscles that I consider to be part of the refinement of the the diamond of the the mind. And um, yeah, we talked about the, the the example that it came from. Where did I where did I see this from? It's the video I'll link down below. Uh, the Buddhists attacking Muslims in in Myanmar and and who's promoting this and who's trying to stop this. It was very interesting. Um, a few thoughts on high and low context cultures and we can go into that absolutely let me know what you think um but i think one of the biggest points is to consider yourself to be a diamond in constant refinement and if you don't uh maintain that diamond that you are refining you know it's going to almost travel back in time revert back to an unrefined stone it's something that we need to to do consistently constantly and the work that we do, maybe we won't revert back for years and years and years and years and years. You know, this this is something that takes years of work. Um, and if you've got a more apt metaphor, I'd love to hear it. But that's it. And so um, let me know what you thought. If you enjoyed this, if, uh, if it said anything that you disagreed with, you know, let me know as well. Uh, but once again, the main point is to add value to you. So if this has sparked a thought... You know, share it with someone. Share this audio with someone and uh, start a conversation around it. You know the drill. Perhaps an ex- uh, an extension of this could be to meditate on it. I had a friend in London who was one of the Tibetan Buddhists that I met. His name was Kelsang Pao. And um, he used to ask me to m- meditate on a word, to contemplate the meaning of this word, for example. And so I would ask you to meditate, you know, to sit in quiet contemplation and think about this idea of refining the mind and what does that look like to you and i would love to hear your thoughts thank you very much this has been thought architecture and i've been justin nope just until this point i will no longer be justin nope once this audio stops (laughs) have a lovely day